Good morning. Today's reading will be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. If you're using one of the Bibles here at the church, it's the ESV version, page 826. Now, sorry. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that Jesus was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May God praise the reading and teaching of his word. Well, I'm going to pray in just a moment, but I think it's appropriate on the front end of this sermon to just give a a little bit of a pastoral perspective on things like we've just prayed about related to Lynn's passing. And just to put it very simply and succinctly, brothers and sisters, this is why the book of Job is in the Bible and how grateful we should be that God gave us a story in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature that helps us have heart uh, under distressing and difficult and inexplicable circumstances that make absolutely no sense. In fact, it's interesting that Job is in the wisdom literature where it is, because if you remember the wisdom books of the Bible in the Old Testament, they all have a little bit of a different slant to them. And wisdom biblically defined is skill for right living. It's learning how to navigate this fallen world to the glory of God because God has built within this world certain patterns. And we see a lot of those patterns fleshed out in the book of Proverbs. That's the way life normally works. Normally, fools are brought down and the righteous are exalted. But that is not always the case. And that's why we have the book of Job. Because the book of Job gives us the exceptions. When the rules don't make sense. When life doesn't follow the predictable pattern. And then the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us how to respond to that. We don't look for meaning below. We look vertical. We look to the Lord. And we rest in him. Psalms then gives us the words. It gives us the words of lament and praise and faith and trust in the midst of darkness. And then Song of Solomon reminds us of God's steadfast and unchanging and unshakable love. That's what it means to be wise, brothers and sisters, is that, yes, life has a basic pattern to it, but there are exceptions, and there are radical things that happen that make zero sense to us, but in God's wise and inscrutable ways, we know from Romans 8.28 that he works them all together for good for those who love God, and Lynn was one of those, and those who are called according to his purpose. And that includes things like neither life nor death, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In James chapter 5, he reminds us of what the big idea of the book of Job is when James writes, you know the steadfastness of Job and the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that will be the end of this story. That will be the end of this story. That the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word now in Matthew 21, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And that you would incline our hearts right now in this moment toward your word and not toward selfish gain. That our hearts would be united, O God, to fear your name and that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts in this moment be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And may we receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The beginning of the end. That's what I've titled the sermon this morning because that is the point of Matthew chapter 21. This is the beginning of the end of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. That's the best way to describe this chapter. Matthew 21 describes the last week of Jesus' life. And over a period of eight days, as we walk through these last eight chapters of Matthew leading up to Advent in December. Over these next eight days of Jesus' life, Jesus will enter Jerusalem, the city of God. He will cleanse the temple. He will challenge the religious leaders. He will completely redefine Passover. He will get arrested. He'll be brought to trial. He'll be crucified. He'll be buried And three days later, he will rise from the dead. This is the week that all creation has been waiting for. This is the week where Genesis 3.15, God's redemptive promise in the garden, is fulfilled. Remember back in Genesis 3.15 when God made the promise to Adam and Eve and told the serpent as well that there will come a one who will crush the head of the serpent. His heel will be bruised but the serpent's head will be crushed. And this is what we see happening over these next eight days in the life of Jesus. It's the crushing of the head of the serpent and God's redemptive promise in in the garden being fulfilled. If you think about it, over one-fourth of Matthew's gospel, we've been in this gospel now virtually the whole year except for the break in the summer. Two-thirds of the year, three-fourths of the year, something like that, we're going to have been in this gospel. And these last eight chapters are devoted to the last eight days of Jesus' life. It's the pinnacle of the whole gospel. It's what the whole gospel has been leading up to at this point. Everything that Matthew's been writing has been leading up to this moment. So in this chapter, we're going to see some really different ways that Jesus begins acting that are are really different from the way he has been acting up to this point. He begins to assert his authority in a way that he hadn't previously done. If you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has largely been pretty meek. 
He's been kind of on the outside of things. He's been right in the center of controversy. But the way he's interacted with the religious leaders and the broken people of who were coming to see him and the sinful people who were desiring his forgiveness and the sick people who were desiring his healing and the poor and downcast who were desiring his help, he was largely seeking to fly under the radar. He was telling people, keep it to yourself. Don't talk about this. Don't mention this to anybody. When the disciples acknowledge that Jesus is going to die after Jesus tells them, he says, make sure you don't tell anybody about what I've just told you. But now, in a sense, the gloves are off. Jesus is happy to walk right out into the center of attention and draw in the, the ire and eyes of the whole crowd of Jerusalem at this time. He's taking the spotlight now. He's stepping directly into the spotlight and asserting his authority in a way that we have previously unseen, which is in a way previously unseen up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's why he gets the question that Joe read for us in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. And as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? There's a new level of authority and weight to what Jesus is doing. And eventually, this authority is going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow until Jesus is crucified and buried and risen, and then announces at the very end of this gospel in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the way he gets that authority is by surrendering and dying. And rising again. And God installs him as the King and Christ, the one in whom we are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because this Christ has been given all authority in heaven on earth. So, this morning, what I want to do is look at five ways Jesus asserts his authority as the Christ and what that means for us. Five ways that Jesus asserts his authority in this chapter as the Christ and what that means for us. Here's the first one. Jesus asserts his authority by confirming his identity publicly, by publicly confirming his identity. Let's read the first 11 verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is a quotation from Zechariah 9. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on Put, them, their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. He's going public now. He's going public. He is told his disciples, go, get a donkey. I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. 
This is Passover week. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But in Pat, during Passover week, the, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled to five or six times its normal size. And he is taking center stage and riding into Jerusalem with people shouting around him, Hosanna to the son of David. People know what the son of David is in Israel. They know that's the Messiah. And here he's not correcting them. He's not telling them to be quiet about that. He is asserting his authority and confirming his identity. He even says to his disciples, go and get this donkey. And if anybody has a question about that, just tell them that the Lord told you that we need it. The Lord, the Lord needs it. And so Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. He is hailed with great acclaim. People are spreading their cloaks on the road, symbolizing submission to him. They are laying down their palm branches in front of him. And they are worshiping him as the son of David, as the Messiah of Israel. And they are doing it so much that as he's entering Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. The whole city gets wind of this event and what's going on. And they say, who is this guy? And they remind him, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. These people are crying out to this Jesus, this prophet, this son of David that they identify as the one who can save them. As Jonathan reminded us, Hosanna means save us, save us, save us. They, these people are pinning their hopes on this Jesus to be the long-awaited promised one who would come and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so they're crying out to save for Jesus to extend their salvation to him. Now, he's confirmed his identity, has he not? He's gone public with it. And... Christians, this reminds us, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, that we get a picture of what it means to be his disciple right here. This is what it means to be a Christian. What it means to put your trust in Jesus is to cry out to him to save you, to worship him, to submit your life to him and transfer ownership and authority in your life. To this Christ. And we gladly surrender to him. And we look to him as the only one who can save us. But we also must remember that in this crowd, they had a skewed perspective of who the son of David was. Okay, they had an idea, and many of them, and we've already seen this in the Gospel of Matthew, many of them had a had an idea that this son of David was going to be a political ruler. That he was going to come and save them from tyranny, and threats from external governments and authorities like Rome and deliver them. And they were going to be set free from political oppression. But this is not the kind of king that's coming. And we see that demonstrated by the fact that he's not coming in on a white horse. Oh, he will one day. We see that in the book of Revelation. But as he enters Jerusalem here, he is coming on a donkey. Which is symbolic. And in fact, he's coming on a smaller donkey that would have had its mother right next to it. He's taking a humble position. He's bringing before them this deliberate sort of contradiction, it seems. 
you've got this whole crowd, you've got this man stirring up a whole city, and yet they're all crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, and the son of David is coming with cloaks and palm branches on a donkey. Such that he's referred to by the others and would have been known as the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He's just one. He's just a prophet. He's named Jesus. So this king is coming, but he's not necessarily the kind of king that they or often we are expecting. Remember, this was Passover week. And Passover, if you remember, was a time... When people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Remembrance in the book of Exodus. It was a feast that reminded the people of God of the time when God rescued their fathers from slavery in Egypt and brought salvation to them through the blood of a lamb. Now Jesus, the Lamb of God, is coming into Jerusalem during Passover, to inaugurate a new and greater exodus. Not a political one, a spiritual one. A exodus that is coming to rescue people from slavery to sin. Ultimately, Jesus' agenda is a political one, just not in this age. But Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is coming in to Jerusalem to inaugurate a new and greater exodus and is coming into Jerusalem during Passover week. And brothers and sisters, this is no coincidence. He is trying to take center stage during a time when the Jews would know and remember that a lamb had to be slain for them to escape the wrath of God and deliverance from slavery. And he is coming into Jerusalem to state publicly that he is that lamb. He is going to be that sacrificial lamb who is going to die at the end of this week. And he is going to take in his body the wrath of God against all the sins of those who would ever believe in him. And he's going to offer up his life as a sacrifice to God to deliver people from slavery to sin and self and the judgment of God. This is no coincidence. This is the identity of our king. This is who our king is. And we need to know him correctly. We don't need to look to Jesus to save us in our political situation, although we are thankful that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, are we not? And that one day, justice and righteousness will be the foundation of the throne of the universe. But right now, that is not the case. Right now, he is reigning and ruling, but he is not asserting himself through a political process. He is asserting himself and his rule in this world through us, his people, the church, who are called by Jesus to pray for rulers and all those who are in high authority that we might live a peaceful and godly life in such a way that the gospel might spread through our country and that more might be brought into the kingdom of this great king. So there's the identity of Jesus. He's confirmed it. He's gone public with it. And that's the first way he asserts his authority in this chapter. Secondly, he asserts his authority by cleansing the temple. We see this in the very next verses. Now, this would have been probably the next day. So he's coming into Jerusalem on a Sunday. And then Monday morning, he would have been coming in and entered the temple 
And this is what he did. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple, the center of all the religious life that was going on in the people of Israel, especially during Passover. Jesus enters the temple, and what does he do? He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame aren't allowed in the temple. They're not allowed to draw near to to God. They're unclean. And yet Jesus doesn't get them out of the temple. He heals them in the midst of the temple. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So he really asserts his presence now. I mean, the temple compound was huge. He's not just talking about the temple himself. Within the temple, there was a huge grounds surrounding the temple. Part of those grounds would have been for Gentiles who were coming to Jerusalem as part of Passover to offer sacrifices. And they weren't just people who were living in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. The temple compound was huge. And Jesus wasn't driving people out of the temple per se, but the larger temple compound where the Gentiles would have been and the Jews would have seen So what he does is he comes into the temple and Mark 11 indicates this event taking place on a, on a Monday, a day later, if you're wondering why I said that earlier. But the event take place, takes place in the courts around the temple, not in the temple itself. The marketplace around the temple provided animals needed for sacrifice by those who had traveled a great distance. This is a pilgrimage. Passover week comes, I mean, people are not going to bring their animals hundreds of miles in some cases to come to Passover. And to offer the sacrifices that were requisite for it, they're not going to come and do that. Their animals are likely to die on the way. So this, it wasn't necessarily wrong that animals were being sold to people. What Jesus was seeing is where it was happening and why it was happening and, and what, what, what was going on in the midst of all that was happening there. R.T. France puts it this way. He says, Jesus' action is not directed against the traitors as though what they were doing and selling animals was somehow wrong. But all who had come to the sacrifice, it seems then that it's not any specific malpractice that Jesus rejects, but the whole system of sacrificial worship, which had developed into big business and particularly the temple authorities who had allowed its commercial aspect to become enshrined within the temple precincts. See, a lot of times this marketplace activity of buying and selling of the animals would have taken place outside the temple, not on the temple grounds. And Jesus sees it taking place on the temple grounds itself. And as he looks at this and what has become of the whole religious spiritual system, it just rips him to the core. It gets into his gut such that he can't stomach it. He can't stomach. It's not that he can't stomach a sacrificial system. He can't stomach what this sacrificial system has become. This sort of business transaction. This sort of, well, just come on here and here's the temple courts and you can come on in here and do all this and buy your animals and all that stuff. And surely there's probably some taking advantage of people going on. That's probably why he refers to the, refers to the, the temple becoming a den of robbers. 
But there's, there's just things going on and Jesus just says, this is not what God intended at all. The temple is to be a place where people seek God in prayer. It's not to be a place where business transactions are conducted. It's not to be a place, it's to be a place where the blind and the lame and the broken find healing. Not who are cast out because they don't fit. It's not a place where children are told to sit down and shut up. It's a place where they're told, sing your praises. See, this had become a very formal, transactional, cultural thing. Ripped of the spiritual heart. And Jesus can't stand it. And that's why it's so important, the verse that he quotes, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. See, what he's not seeing is communion with God. And that's what bothers him. He's not seeing communion with God. Brothers and sisters, we need to take this into account because you do know that we ourselves as the body of Christ are the temple of the living God. And he still desires us as a temple to be a house of prayer. Do you know that? And nothing will make Jesus more sick and nauseous than when he sees a people who are busy with lots of things but don't have any time to talk to him. Brothers and sisters, we have a prayer meeting here. It's one prayer meeting. It's an important one. It is a gauge. It's not the only gauge of our church, and it's the church's health. But it is a gauge. And the gauge is... We might have 20 people here. And those people are here who, and they pray. And you can't always judge the size of a, of a church's prayer meeting and all of that by, by, by necessarily having spiritual activity. You can have lots of people there and it not be real either. But what I'm saying is, is brothers and sisters, we are bombarded by the same distractions that the people in the temple had. Commercialism, materialism, consumerism, busyness, activity. And Jesus would step in and say to us lovingly, let none of that. And he would say probably it's impossible to do both. To be consumed in other priorities and neglect communion with God. Neglect communion with God. Brothers and sisters, we're bombarded by it all, and our lives are filled with so much activity. But let us not neglect communion with God. Let us not neglect prayer, both individually, but especially as a church. Because that's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about his the house. He's not talking about your house, your home. He's talking about the, the temple, which is in the new covenant, the church of Jesus. And he's saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Prayer is one of the hallmarks of the church. It's what defines the church. And to the degree that the church is not seriously engaged in pursuing a greater and greater devotion to prayer, we see that in Acts 2, right? They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, break bread, and the prayers. They gave themselves to this because this is what a church that is pleasing to Jesus looks like. And this is what a church that where Jesus is not going to want to drive some people out. Don't you want that? Don't you want the, don't we want the gracious presence of Jesus, the welcomed presence of Jesus 
then we have to pray. And if we don't pray and we are not devoting ourselves to prayer, we are inviting the discipline of the Lord among us. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know from the Bible it's going to happen. We will be disciplined as a body for a lack of prayerlessness, for a lack of prayer, I should say, for giving in to prayerlessness. We will be disciplined as a body. By the, not by your pastors, by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. He's the senior pastor around here, not any one of us. And what he gets, he gets the first vote. And he gets to call us to be what he needs us to be as a church and what he desires us to be as a church. And we must be a prayerful church. And so be committed to prayer, brothers and sisters. Be committed to prayer as a Christian. Be committed to prayer as a, as a, as a, as a communion, as a church. We need to be committed to prayer. And, and see it as, as a way to please the one who has saved us and to, just like we do with our earthly parents, desire to please him so we don't have to receive his discipline. That's grace, brothers and sisters. It's not, we're not relating to Jesus as though, you know, well, he loves us and he forgives us and nothing we do will, will ever, will ever incur the discipline of Jesus. That's not New Testament Christianity. It's not true. You can be saved and radically disciplined by Jesus such that in the church of Corinth, they were saved and some of them were killed as a result of their failure to do the Lord's Supper properly. I mean, is this like, I mean, does this sound weird to you? <laughs> does this sound like, oh, this is strange. I've never heard this before. This is New Testament. This is, this is what Revelation 2 and 3 are about when Jesus addresses his churches. He says to them, Here's what, here's what's great about you. Keep doing this. Here's where you need work. You need to address it or I'm going to come and I'm going to de-church you. You're not going to be a church anymore. I'm removing the lampstand. And so as a church, we should care deeply about this. It shouldn't just be, well, our leaders care deeply. No, what Jesus cares about, we care about, right? As his people. And so as his people, we must care about his temple. And his temple is the church and we must Desire to keep his temple in optimal health and optimally welcoming of his presence and power. And that happens through prayer. So let us, brothers, again, sisters, renew ourselves this morning to be devoted to prayer. And then humbly, let's go to Jesus collectively and individually and say, Lord Jesus, we are sorry that we neglect this. Would you please forgive us and would you empower us afresh to pray, to pray to you? So there's there's the cleansing of the temple, and Jesus is still cleansing temples today. And may he continue to cleanse and help us as his church. Uh, number three, this is another way Jesus asserts his authority, is by cursing the fig tree. And this is related. We'll see all these are related to each other. So here we go. Verse 18. In the morning, so he's coming back the next day. He's already left. He's, this is Tuesday morning now. Sunday he comes in. Monday, he cleanses the temple. Tuesday, back in the morning, stayed in Bethany, probably at Mary and Martha's house. We don't know that for sure, but that could have very, that could have very well been the place that they lodged. Matthew doesn't tell us, but he's back in the morning. He comes back for the third day of Passover, and as he's returning to the city of Jerusalem, he becomes hungry. Verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, 
how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So there's a couple of, he's, he's coming back around to the prayer theme again. We see him doing that. He's teaching his disciples about prayer. He's obviously already taught them about prayer in the cleansing of the temple situation. They're looking at, they heard what he said. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And then he comes back, and the next morning, he curses this fig tree. Now, when he comes up upon the fig tree, it's very important, and this is, this can seem, if we didn't know Jesus better, you can seem like he's behaving like a pretty petulant adolescent, right? I wanted food, and it's not there. I hate you, tree. (laughs) That's not what he's doing, okay? So just, let's get that out. He's not behaving like... Our 10-year-old children, you know, I'm hungry. I want something to eat. No, he's using this as an object lesson, okay, for his disciples. He does not curse the fig tree out of petulance. Instead, he does it in order to make a statement about what's happening all around him. Everything that he's seeing, everything that he's observing about what's going on during Passover here in the city of Jerusalem. What's his object lesson? Well, it's really clear, isn't it? He's coming up on a tree. He's expecting to find fruit on it. And he doesn't. So he curses it. He asserts his authority by cursing a literal fig tree to show a figurative object lesson of what he's doing to the Jewish nation. And cursing them for their Failure to bear fruit. We've seen it already. They're failing to bear fruit by treating the temple correctly. But they're also failing to be what God's people should be. And who should God's people be? People who are full, as Jesus says in verses 21 through 22, full of faith and confidence and trust in God. Such that they pray to God with great faith believing that he's able to do the impossible. And that's not what he's finding. That's what a fruitful Christian life looks like. That's what, that's the kind of fruit that he's looking for in the people of Israel, which is why he says to you, if you have faith and don't doubt. But what he's seeing is, yeah, these people, they have an external faith in some sense. They're coming to Passover and they're offering their sacrifices in accord with the law and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But all throughout their life and heart, there's full of doubt and mistrust and lack of faith in God. And so he says to his disciples in this object lesson, disciples, I'm looking for people who will bear fruit. And church, we must not be like Israel of old, having all the signs of outward religion, but lacking any real spiritual fruit. Jesus absolutely hates, and that's not, he curses. He curses the tree. He absolutely hates profession without practice. Words without heart. He wants real spiritual fruit. The fruit of faith, the fruit of love, the fruit of obedience, the fruit of 
dependence upon God. And this is just so important for us to understand because in the light of everything that Jesus is talking about, he's underscoring again for us, fruitfulness matters, right? John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Communion, communion, closeness, fellowship with Jesus, obedience to Jesus. That's what bears fruit, right? You were already clean because of the word I spoke to you, Jesus said. Abide in me and I will abide in you. If a man remains in me and I in him, it, he it is that it bear, bears much fruit. If he does not bear fruit, he is like a branch that is withers away and he cuts it off and thrown into the fire. That's curse. That's unfruitful branch. Definition, professed Christian that was actually a non-Christian. Said they were a part of the branch, didn't bear fruit, means they were a false Christian. Not a real one. Real Christians don't get cut off because real Christians bear fruit. That's how you know real Christians from false Christians. It's not perfection, it's direction. It's an ever-growing obedience to Jesus, love for Jesus, communion with Jesus. Not an ever-lessening one, but an ever-growing one. And even down to old age, I want to encourage some of our older saints here this morning, just with a, just a, a brief word. You know, death like, death of, of like our sister Lynn, who's younger, can make us, you know, as older, older saints begin to think even more about our own death, right? She was cut off at such a young age. And those of us who are older may be thinking things like, oh, how many years do I have left? Why is time moving so fast? Why is my body becoming so unreliable? How many, how many, how, how much more time is the Lord going to give me? But I want to encourage you, older saints, one of the main ways you bear fruit in your old age is by pouring yourself out into the younger generation. And I would plead with you to do that so that you can fulfill what Psalm 92, 12 through 15 says. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Sounds like temple language, doesn't it? Which means we can't bear fruit if we're not connected to the church. There is no fruitful Christianity without churchianity. You've got to be a part of the church to bear fruit because Psalm 92 says that we grow and flourish and are planted in the house of the Lord and we grow in the courts of God. That's where we grow. We grow in connection to the people of God. And notice Psalm 92, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Get this older Christian brother and sister. Jesus intends to bear fruit through you all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And that's good news. He's not done with you after you reach the cultural sell-by date where you're put out to pasture. Go enjoy the golf course in your retirement. You're no good use to society anymore. No. In the kingdom of God, it's totally the opposite. The older among us receive great respect from us and desire from us to learn from them. And so we pr I pray and ask you older generation, bring somebody alongside of you. Teach them. Talk to them. Meet with them once a month a younger Christian in this congregation, and pour into them. You don't have to spend every waking moment with them. But you, but pour yourself out. Bear fruit that will remain. 
The impact of your life will carry on into the life of another person, and you will bear fruit even down to old age. So Jesus asserts his authority by confirming his identity, by cleansing the temple, by cursing the fig tree, and these last two are going to be very quick. Number four, by challenging the religious leaders. I'm not going to read the text again. Joe read it for us. What does he do differently here in his interaction with the religious leaders than what he hasn't done up to this point? You remember up to this point, Jesus has basically been confronted by religious leaders and he hasn't answered them or he said something different. But this time he pushes back and they come to him and they say to him, okay, so by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? And he says, wait, let me ask you a question. Good rabbinical fashion. Let me ask you a question. Was, was John, was what he was doing, was that of God or of man? Because remember, they had rejected John at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus corners them, just like they've been trying to corner him. But he's pushing back on them now, and he says, listen, did John, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Was that of God? Did that come from heaven, or was that just a man thing? And so they pull together and like, oh, well, we, we can't really answer this question. Because if we say God, then, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you listen to John? And you're disobeying God. And if we say man, we're going to be hated by people because people here hold that John the Baptist is really important. We're stuck. And so they come back to Jesus like, we don't know. And he knows that's a lie. And so he just says, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> In his own way. I'm, neither, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to talk about these things. So he challenges the religious leaders. He's not going to be the whipped puppy anymore. He turns back on them and says, listen, you think you have me cornered. You're the ones that are cornered. And so he moves on. He tells a couple parables about it in the remainder of the chapter. He tells one parable starting at verse 28, the parable of the two sons about a man who had two sons. Verse 28, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, oh, I I will not. And afterward, he changed his mind and he went. Then he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, okay, I'll go, sir. But he did not go. So Jesus asked them, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said, the first one was the one who said, well, I don't know. But then he went. So he says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes Go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So his whole point is, is that you are like the second son. The tax collectors and sinners and those who come into the kingdom, they're like the first son. But the religious leaders, they are like the second son. They said they would go, but they didn't go. They have no integrity. They're not really interested in following God and following Jesus. And so Jesus exposes that in them by telling them a parable that wakes them up to their condition. And then he tells them another parable starting at verse 33, and this goes even deeper. I mean, this gets them hot. If you don't think it makes them hot, look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. He is deliberately antagonizing them and pricking them where they don't want to be pricked. And he tells this gripping story in the parable of the tenants. I won't read the whole thing about a father who sends a son into the vineyard or really 
into the vineyard. And what happens is the, the tenants and people begin to beat him and they kill him and they throw him out because he find, he sends several before he sends the son. But when the son is sent in, he completely, they, they say, come verse 20, verse 38, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And then Jesus asked the people, so when verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to those tenants? They just killed his son. They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And Jesus says, have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So he says, this is what you're doing to me right now. I am the son sent by the father that has come to the vineyard. There have been prophets before me who have come and told you that I would be here. And now I've come and your desires to end my life and kill me. And so he catches them in a parable about what's going to happen in his own life. And, he, and they're, they're so over, just brought to rage about this that they want to get Jesus out of here as fast as possible. And they seek to arrest him. And this is only going to intensify as the weeks go on. So in closing, I should say as the days go on. He doesn't have weeks, but as the days go on. So we've seen Jesus assert his authority here. He's asserted, he's asserted his authority by confirming his identity, by cleansing the temple, by, cha- by cursing the fig tree, by challenging the religious leaders, and then taking upon himself, this is the fifth point from the parable of tenants, that he has the right to change the people of God. He has a right to say who's in the kingdom and who isn't. <laughs> this is no ordinary prophet. This is the son of God. And so he says to them, In verse 43, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to a people producing its fruits. There's fruit bearing again. And so let us marvel this morning, brothers and sisters, at our assertive, authoritative Jesus who is able to save us and make us to be his fruit bearing followers. Let's pray to that end as we close. Father, we thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. We thank you that he is your anointed one. He is your long promised Messiah, King and Christ. And with those crowds on Palm Sunday, we want to worship him this morning by saying Hosanna in the highest to the son of David. Lord Jesus, you and you alone can save us. If anyone's here this morning who is outside of the kingdom of God, who is living an unfruitful life by biblical standards, who is not, who knows themselves to be a sinner and unqualified for the kingdom because they have not surrendered to the king, may you bring them into the kingdom this morning. Even as we sing this song about your desire, about our desire to have you save us and bring us into your kingdom, God, make us to be a fruit 
bearing, fruitful church under your lordship and kingship, Jesus. Make us to be a prayerful people, a fruitful people, a people that are not challenging your authority, but welcoming your authority, a people who are not desiring to kill your son or exclude your son, but to welcome your son and to receive your son and to graciously desire his influence in greater measures among us. Do this for your glory and for our good by the ever needy power of the Holy Spirit that we so desperately depend upon and look to this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.